<clears throat> this is the third day of this March 2022, seven-day Sashin, and we're going to read again from a book by Guo Gu, Silent Illumination, a Chan Buddhist Path to Natural Awakening. <clears throat> when we left off yesterday, uh, we're, we were reading from uh, a section <clears throat> entitled Contentment, uh, the first and, uh, uh, according to Gogu, the most important of the uh, attitudes that we can cultivate uh, in relation to our practice, in relation to our lives. <clears throat> he says, contentment is traditionally expressed in Chan as non-grasping. In other words, contentment and non-grasping, same thing. In the platform scripture, <clears throat> Master Wei Nung, who lived from 638 to 713, uh, the... Uh, Sixth Patriarch, considered to be the founder of uh, one of the founders of Zen. It was under Huaynang that uh, Zen took its form. Even though we trace back <clears throat> quite a ways to, to Bodhidharma over a hundred years earlier. says, Master Weining provides three principles to deal with it. No thought, no form, and non-abiding. We just read in the Hakuin chant, our form now being no form, and going and returning, we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. <clears throat> so Master Weineng, Weineng lays out no thought, no form, and non-abiding. These three principles are antidotes to our grasping of our inner world. It's no thought, outer relations, it's no form, and identity. It's who we are, non-abiding. In order to appreciate these three principles, we need to recognize grasping as a deep-seated feeling tone. It's a sense of lack, a thirst for some thing. Of course, being discontented can bring about change for the better in our lives, but here I'm referring to a habit of possessiveness which arises from self-grasping. Weinung says, good friends, since the past, this teaching of ours has first taken no thought as its principle, <clears throat> no form as its essence, and non-abiding as its foundation. No thought means to be without thought in the midst of thinking. No form is to transcend form within the context of forms and appearances. Non-abiding 
is your fundamental nature. All worldly things are empty. <clears throat> then Guo Gu goes on. Thoughts, feelings, and narratives are what we grasp internally. Form is what we grasp externally, and this can include our bodies, objects, environment, status, wealth, and appearances. None of these objects of grasping are in and of themselves bad. Sometimes they're needed to help us navigate through life and improve our circumstances. However, when our grasping is driven by possessiveness and obsession, it brings about suffering for ourselves and others. Non-abiding is just a Chan way of saying non-grasping. Everything is fluid, changing, open to opportunities. This is how things, including ourselves, are. Nothing is fixed, rigid. So how can anything be grasped? <clears throat> Grasping and rejecting are always based on our self-referential obsessions. If we are captivated or repulsed by whatever comes up in our practice, that it gains power over us and the problem becomes worse. When difficulties arise, it is important to see them clearly, accept them, work with them, and let them go. The true nature of things is non-abiding, fresh, and dynamic. Relating to our feelings and thoughts through grasping and rejecting ruins everything. If we grasp at them, we're going against their nature. We suffer and probably cause everyone around us to suffer. When we grasp and reject, we're ultimately concerned with me, I, and mine. We're thinking self-referentially. <clears throat> and all of us do this. It's, it's an addictive behavior. It's an unskillful, reactive mode that we go into, trying to find our footing, trying to get out from underneath, trying to get what we want and avoid what we don't want. It's the basic human problem. <clears throat> and it's the grist for the mill of practice. He says, the opposite of thinking, grasping, and abiding <clears throat> is contentment. And it's the most important of all attitudes to cultivate in order to see our inner experiences and outer relations in our tr as our true nature. <clears throat> I want to make sure that people understand um, that by contentment, we don't mean there's nothing to do. In one sense, there is nothing to do, something to see. But it doesn't mean a lack of motivation. It means that we're content to work from where we are. And how could we work from anywhere else? It's natural to want to sort of leap into some better state 
to be somebody that we're not. Real work begins when we start from where we are. <clears throat> okay, so now he goes into these three aspects, no thought, no form, and non-abiding. So with no thought, how do we relate to our inner experience? In the above platform scripture passage, no thought does not mean cutting off thinking. It means there is no fixation in regard to the free flow of our thinking. We don't need to reify or solidify what we experience into my thoughts, my feelings. <clears throat> if self-grasping is present, then thoughts don't flow. When we suffer, we are caught in the middle of the stories that we're fabricating, and in this way, we prolong that suffering. We, that is, we, we think the same things over and over again. We perseverate. How many times do we go around the same circle? Whatever it is for us, whatever form of self-criticism, dissatisfaction, restlessness, <clears throat> get caught up in our thoughts, believe them, and then we're stuck. He says, ordinarily our happiness is completely dependent on thoughts, narratives, concepts, and words. So if we have negative self-disparaging thoughts and we automatically identify with them, then we'll feel very unhappy. If someone praises us and we identify with that, then we will feel very happy. This is quite normal. Unfortunately, when we're tethered to our thoughts, we actually lose our autonomy. Like a puppet, we're tied up by the strings of our thoughts, completely at the mercy of our narratives. The problem is not with thoughts. The problem is the strings that tie us to those thoughts are grasping and rejecting. And we could also say, the problem is our believing those thoughts. <clears throat> I think I'll indulge myself here and read a passage from my friend Anthony DeMello that really addresses this whole phenomenon. <clears throat> he says, do you want to see how mechanical you really are? My, that's a lovely shirt you're wearing. You feel good hearing that, for a shirt, for heaven's sakes. You feel proud of yourself when you hear that. People come over to my center in India and they say, what a lovely place, these lovely trees, <clears throat> this lovely climate. And already I'm feeling good until I catch myself feeling good and I say, hey, can you imagine anything as stupid as that? I'm not responsible for those trees. I wasn't responsible for choosing the location. I didn't order the weather. It just happened. <clears throat> but me got in there, so I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good about my culture and my nation. How stupid can you get? I mean that. I'm told that my great Indian culture has produced all these mystics. 
I didn't produce them. I'm not responsible for them. Or they tell me, this country of yours and its poverty, it's disgusting. I feel ashamed. But I didn't create it. What's going on? Did you ever stop to think? <clears throat> People tell you, I think you're very charming, so I feel wonderful. I get a positive stroke. That's why they call it, I'm okay, you're okay. I'm going to write a book someday, and the title will be, I'm an ass, you're an ass. That's the most liberating, wonderful thing in the world when you openly admit you're an ass. It's wonderful. When people tell me you're wrong, I say, what can you expect of an ass? We're all of us, we're all of us, imperfect human beings. Everybody is an ass. He says, dismissed or disarmed. Everyone, everybody has to be disarmed. In the final liberation, I'm an ass, you're an ass. Normally the way it goes, I press a button and you're up. I press another button and you're down. And you like that. How many people do you know who are unaffected by praise or blame? That isn't human, we say. Human means you have to have a little, you have to be a little monkey. So everybody can twist your tail and you do whatever you ought to be doing. But is that human? If you find me charming, it means right now you're in a good mood, nothing more. <clears throat> Later on he says, if you ever let yourself feel good when people tell you you're okay, you are preparing yourself to feel bad when they tell you you're not good. As long as you live to fulfill other people's expectations, you better watch what you wear, how you comb your hair, whether your shoes are polished, in short, whether you live up to every damned expectation of theirs. Do you call that human? <clears throat> really, there is no difference between our buying into the praise or criticism of others, whole thing of praise and blame, and our buying into our thoughts, our thoughts of how good we are or how inadequate we are. It's all the same. <clears throat> Going back to Guo Gu, he said, the problem is the strings that tie us to those thoughts, our grasping and rejecting. Here, thought has two levels of meaning. The first refers to our mental activity, our brain's natural ability to think, symbolize, conceptualize, cognize, and perceive. The second level refers to our fixation on our constructs, notions, and storylines. In other words, our tendency to reify ideas and feelings into discrete realities, into things. There is no problem with our natural ability to think, imagine, and so on. The problem is when we start to solidify our thoughts and feelings into fixed notions of me, I, and mine. To practice contentment, we have to first expose our sense of lack or our need to possess something. <clears throat> we always have to start by seeing. He says, don't identify with these subtle feeling tones. 
At the same time, don't block them either. There are reasons why we feel and think the way we do. Our thoughts and feelings reveal something about us. Recognizing them as they arise and not grasping or rejecting them is itself a way to own and embrace them. <clears throat> could say We could say get some distance from them not have that automatic flinching or grasping. Be able to see these things come and go. Realize this doesn't touch our true self. He says when we can allow ourselves to be with them, we can start to work with them, to work through them, and to let go of them, which means they no longer have a strong hold over us. <clears throat> we generally believe that the way we think about ourselves is how we actually are. We cannot distinguish between our thoughts and the reality of who we are. Moreover, we tend to treat ourselves according to whatever so subtle feelings we happen to have at the moment. If we're feeling negative, we don't see anything good about ourselves. When we're in a good mood, even a shortcoming is adorable. This projection happens so quickly that we don't usually recognize it. But this subtle feeling is what the passage above calls thought. <clears throat> so when you feel something within, recognize it, but don't reify. That is, don't make it a thing. Don't solidify it into a thing. Definitely don't, definitely don't build a whole narrative around it. This is the meaning of practicing no thought amid thoughts. <clears throat> it's learning to have a healthier relationship with our thoughts instead of being conditioned by them. Or we could say instead of being controlled by them. Manipulated by them. He goes on, sometimes we build a whole narrative around some spiritual experiences we've had. This is another way we reify the natural flow of thoughts. When we have powerful experiences and want a teacher to verify it as awakening, then this very need for verification is a form of self-grasping. If a person has woken up from a dream, why would they need verification from someone else? Why would there, why, why would there be a need to announce to the world that they've woken up. <clears throat> so much room to get messed up with the whole idea of having had an experience. Usually that's something people have to work through. Clearly, we want to see the truth. We want to wake up. It's the most wonderful thing in the world. But then to want to be a person who woken, who's woken up to make that our identity, it's ridiculous. <clears throat> in fact, it's an indication we've gone back to sleep. Gogu says, The free flow of our minds is the wonderful dynamic activity of our creativity and intellect. There's no need to stop thoughts. 
At the same time, it is necessary to develop the ability to be free from thoughts. One way to do that is to cultivate, through meditation, the ability to bring the mind from a scattered state to a concentrated state, and from the concentrated state to a unified state, that is, to a state with no subject and object, completely one. And then, to free our grasping of even the unified state, the place where subject and object merge. And then he turns to no form. No form is a teaching on how to relate to the external world. Ordinarily, we grasp appearances and characteristics as discrete things, but there's really not a single thing. Nothing is fixed. Roshi has a uh, calligraphy scroll in the teacher's quarters. What it says is from the very beginning, there's never been a single thing. is no fixed objective reality. To transcend form within the context of forms, <clears throat> as Hui Nung says, is a teaching on not denying or divorcing ourselves from form, but allowing all appearances and characteristics to be without us contaminating them with our projections, ideas, or feelings. We must engage with the world while at the same time we have no vexations about it. When there's room for improvement, We try our best to improve the world of form. When things need to change, we make the change. But emotional afflictions only lead to more vexations. They can contaminate and ruin everything we see, hear, smell, taste, and touch. Such a difficult thing to learn to do, to work for change without becoming critical and bitter seeing the shortcomings of those who resist our efforts. We need to be a happy warrior. So much good that we can do, but things are the way they are. We have to always, whether it's working on ourselves or trying to make improvements around us, have to start from where we are. Guogu says, how do we contaminate forms and appearances? We defile them by attaching to them, reifying them as things out there. When we make everything into a thing, everything we touch can become a problem. For example, I have a student who makes a big deal out of everything. Every task she takes on, however small, she makes into a thing. And it's always a struggle, always complicated, because she overthinks it. I have another student, and for him, everything he encounters is not a big deal. Yet because he feels it is not a big deal, all sorts of unexpected things come up and he makes mistakes. Still, that doesn't really bother him. Both attitudes are problematic. Both follow their own ideas about things out there. Both have contaminated the form with their own habit tendencies. This is not the meaning of no form. 
Engage with forms and appearances. Do what is appropriate, but without grasping onto a fixed way of doing things. No form also applies to meditation practice. The platform scripture states, good friends, what is meditative concentration? Externally, to transcend characteristics is meditation. Internally, to be undisturbed is called concentration. This passage says that meditation means to not be externally swayed by causes and conditions and not be internally disturbed by our own thoughts and feelings. But to do this, we have to first become aware of what's going on inside us, how we're projecting our own standards, ideals, and expectations onto the world of form. So no thought is intimately connected to no form. How we feel inside is how we relate to others. We externalize our internal habits. One of the most common forms of conditioning in meditation is to fall asleep when we relax. Trying to be clear, we tense up and give rise to wandering thoughts. To practice no form in terms of seated meditation means to stay relaxed but wakeful, clear but without wandering thoughts. Whether in daily life or in meditation, the world of form operates through causes and conditions. All appearances are fluid. How then do we work with the changing appearances of form? How do we live in the world of causes and conditions? What about injustice, discrimination, wrongdoing? Of course, the wrongs of the world must be corrected. Each thing is, exact, each thing is exactly how it's supposed to be through the workings of causes and conditions. You could say exactly how it has to be <clears throat> because it's a product of the workings of causes and conditions. This means we need to engage with causes and conditions if we are to better the world. Causes and conditions are about relationships. In working with various relationships, we have to recognize, adapt, wait, and create the right causes and conditions for change. Otherwise, emotional afflictions will follow our every move. Going to skip a little bit, and then he turns to non-abiding. Non-abiding is relating to ourselves and others in an open and receptive way where we allow everything to flow and recognize that each moment is alive, vibrant, filled with infinite possibilities. This is actually the nature of experiencing the workings of Buddha nature and the direct expression of natural awakening. For this reason, quote, non-abiding is your fundamental nature, as Wei Nung said. It is who we are, free from the internal shackles of thoughts and feelings, and the external conditioning of forms. This is the quality, this quality of non-abiding that we see in children. See in a baby, wide open, utterly wide open, and never stuck. See kids can be squabbling and quarreling, and then the next minute they're playing and happy. 
This is our nature. It's because we're caught up in thoughts and forms that we lose lose touch with our non-abiding nature. He says we want things to stay the same because it gives us a sense of security and control, but nothing stays the same. When we embrace change, we become vulnerable, and this vulnerability is true courage. There's strength in being okay with a loss of control, with unpredictability and potential loss. In truth, nothing can break us. We as humans are so resilient. It's only when we try to control and hold on to things that we feel broken. Or we could say we feel brittle. I think most people know who Helen Keller was. In case you don't, uh, she was somebody who was born uh, blind and deaf. Somehow or other, a really dedicated teacher was able to teach her how to read Braille, and uh, she had a pretty wonderful life. And she said this, she said, Security is mostly a superstition does not exist in nature, nor do the children of men as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. If we want to be alive, we have to be vulnerable. Have to give up trying to control things trying to find some safe place where we can stay. Remember in my early practice, always wanting to just get it right and then be able to relax. (laughs) They don't let you relax. He says it's only when we try to control and hold on to things that we feel broken. The reverse is also true. When we experience loss, we desperately try to control. This is because deep inside we feel broken, so we try to fix ourselves. We resist how things really are. But if we embrace our vulnerability, tap into who we truly are, and align with non-abiding, whatever difficulties we face will eventually be integrated within us and will be resolved. this principle non-abiding allowing ourselves to be vulnerable um, reminds me of the first step in AA uh, the 12 step program of Alcoholics Anonymous it is we admitted we were powerless over our drinking and our lives had become unmanageable. The whole program of AA begins with that admission, that vulnerability. Everything becomes possible when we lower our pride. We're no longer trying to uphold an image for other people and for ourselves. When we can be who we are. <clears throat> when we can be content. 
makes a huge change. It's a sea change. <clears throat> can be okay with being an ass. Being a garden variety human being. Then we have a solid ground to work from. It's not an image. We can be who we are. Be okay with the results we get. Put in the effort. The results are up to others, up to causes and conditions. <clears throat> Guo Gu says, how do we cultivate non-abiding? By having the courage to be vulnerable, by engaging with ourselves and the world without fighting everything. There's always going to be opposition when we fixate on ideas about me, I, and mine. But we can respond to the world without injecting a sense of self into our decisions, views, and endeavors. This means our own ideas about gain and loss, benefit and harm, do not block our decisions and experiences. Instead, we consider what is needed depending on the circumstances. <clears throat> it also means we're free to act on what we value. I think the, the basketball star, all-star, Julius Irving said, being a professional is doing what you love even when you don't want to. finding the ability to do what we know we have to do even when we not, we're not feeling it. A friend of mine once said, I could do my taxes if I had the right drugs. Well, sometimes you have to just do your taxes. <clears throat> Gogu says, the difficulties we face in life are indicators of where we are stuck. We must allow ourselves to be open to our underlying feelings and allow them to come through without judging ourselves. Then we can be content and relax our grasping tendencies. We are then able to face causes and conditions and work with them. In non-opposition and openness, everything eventually works out within us. We have to cultivate an attitude of contentment of harmonizing our feelings, and both of these in combination with the three teachings above from the platform scripture. When we do this, our hearts and minds will be open and integrated. <clears throat> Those three teachings, freedom of and from thought, of and from form, and the freedom to act, to move on. <clears throat> Not being stuck. <clears throat> we have a little time, and I'm going to move into the next chapter. And this is entitled, Supporting Attitudes to Cultivate. He says, in the last chapter, we looked at the importance of contentment. Here we'll consider several additional attitudes that are beneficial to cultivate. First of these is interest. Interest is an important attitude that we should cultivate in our lives. It has the quality of engagement, but is not, it is not controlling. It is fascination without interference. 
A good analogy for non-interference is that of a mother sitting in a room with her toddler, letting the toddler play while she knits. In this way, she's present with the child, but doesn't have to fixate her gaze on them or control their every move. Similarly, in our meditation, we're engaged with the method, but we're not tensely focused on it. Our attitude is contentment, yet with interest. If we're tense or controlling, that even if we have the best method in the world, we're not going to be able to use it because our minds will be agitated. <clears throat> Another way to see this, this quality of non-controlling interest is good listening. When we can listen to someone without continually interrupting, it's amazing how many times someone may be telling us something really significant and we jump in there with our suggestions or our clarifications, cut off their flow. The ability to listen. We really help people when we can do that. Just having interest is incredibly healing. Of course, it's a quality that's extremely beneficial for practice. He says, think of the analogy of a relaxed cat watching a mouse hole. The cat is not terribly intense when watching a mouse hole, but it is focused. It's relaxed, but ready at any moment to pounce on a mouse if it comes out of the hole. <clears throat> I always think of what uh, happened one Christmas when I was a teenager at our home. Uh, we were opening presents and, uh, of course, had that pile of wrapping paper that you pile up. And my parents used to like to burn it in the fireplace. So my dad <clears throat> opened up the flue and got some kindling in there and got it going. <clears throat> I guess the paper must have been the kindling. And when the smoke started going up the chimney, Suddenly a bird flew out, and our cat was just asleep, lying on the floor, and it met the bird in midair. It just, it levitated. It was there. No tension at all, just response. <clears throat> It's relaxed, but ready at any moment to pounce on a mouse if it comes out of the hole. It's not tense, but ready and awake. Its mere presence, sitting awake in front of the mouse hole, is enough to scare the mice. They dare not come out because they know that the cat is there. If you adopt this kind of wakeful interest, your wandering thoughts are subdued because the mind is at once relaxed, yet focused and watchful. <clears throat> really, this is the gold standard for good practice. <clears throat> Non-interference does not mean disinterest, however. When I was in college, I lived in New York City above a Buddhist temple that had a lazy temple cat. The temple also had mice, lots of them, but the cat never did anything to them. You might say that the cat was too compassionate because he didn't kill any of the mice but I think it was simply disinterested. The mice would walk across the room scavenging for food and crumbs as we ate our dinner, 
and the cat would just lie there sleeping. <clears throat> Sounds like my dog. In practice, you have to be interested. You can't be like the disinterested, lazy temple cat. You have to develop a clear, watchful mind with which you experience the method, whatever that may be. The mice, your scattered thoughts, wander. If you don't do anything about them, they will continue ceaselessly. If you're meditating on the sensations of the breath while cultivating an attitude of interest, then every breath is fascinating and includes new sensations. The interest keeps you on the method. There's no need to get rid of wandering thoughts. Just be more interested in your method. This attitude of interest has a freshness to it. If your mind is interested, vibrant, and wakeful, you won't take your method for granted, believing that you already know how to do it. Every moment is fresh, and you can engage with it fully. This is the right attitude of interest. The attitude of interest works together with with contentment. Thus, I am not saying we just accept what is. When you say something is, you've already labeled it and made a decision to accept it. Rather, let whatever arises in meditation be what it is, but don't get involved in judging or discriminating thoughts. Interest should not take you off the trail of the method so that you can become interested in everything that arises during meditation. One example we can give, of course, is when makyo arise, strange visions or sensations, to turn to them is to leave the practice. Developing interest refers to being one with whatever you may be doing, whether it's the method of your practice or being present for a person. One of the things I think that uh, short circuits our interest in our practice is our concern with results, our concern with our present condition, worrying about how it is. So dull, I'm so sleepy, sitting well earlier, now I can't seem to get a handle on it. Practice is very simple. Forget about results. Turn the mind to the method, whatever your practice is, breath or the koan, just sitting. We're so freed up when we stop judging. We get out from underneath that burden. Then we have energy then we have something we can work with. To try to conform to someone's idea, our own or someone else's, how things should be, what kind of a practitioner we should be, just cuts us off, cuts off our genuine being, our authenticity. Getting caught up in worry about how fast I'm progressing, where I'm going to get. So much more helpful 
to enjoy our practice, to realize here we have this opportunity. It doesn't have to be a, <clears throat> a brutal slog. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is a brutal slog. Then that's just things as they are. <laughs> Nothing stays the same. Everything changes and shifts, especially when we're open. We allow ourselves to be open, to be vulnerable, to be present. <clears throat> okay, time is up. Stop now and recite the four vows. <clears throat> 